Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So this this Christmas, uh, we have decided as a church, as Hope Church, that we wanted to have a little more focus on paying attention to the church calendar related to Christmas. When you pay attention to tradition, you see that Christmas in, in church history has not been just a single day on December 25th, but is actually 12 days. So that song that m- most of us are familiar with, the 12 days of Christmas, that's very uh, hard for us to even understand what all of the days represent and all that sort of thing. It's not just a secular uh, Christmas carol, but represents a Christian tradition that Christmas is a celebration. It's a feast that lasts 12 days, that it's not just a single day and then uh, done and over with. And like Joe said in his sermon last week, Uh, we tend to sort of invert how we think about Advent and Christmas. It's easy for us leading up to Christmas to to feast. And then once Christmas is over, we tend to fast because we're trying to uh, try to work off all the pounds that we built up during our feasting uh, during the Advent season. And that's really how our culture tends to approach the whole Christmas season. But if we pay more attention to how Christians have observed Christmas and Advent, uh, for centuries, we would see that it's actually it ought to be the opposite, that we would uh, fast leading up to Christmas and we would feast after Christmas. Uh, when we think about what Advent is, as a quick way of reminder, Advent is a time of anticipation. It's a time of anticipation of Christ's coming in the flesh, in the incarnation. And in this time of anticipation in Advent, we want to have a heart attitude, a, a posture where we think about um, what do we long for that's broken in this world? How, how have we actually contributed to the brokenness of this world? We want to be sort of solemn in awareness of our longings for how we want God to bring uh, justice and peace and life to its fullest. And, but, you know, in a broken world, we don't experience that in full. So Advent is an anticipation of, of that. Uh, and Christmas, the Christmas season, Christmas tide, as it's been called, is meant to be a celebration. It's meant to be twelve days of celebrating the incarnation. Twelve day, uh, what God has done for us in the incarnation is worth more than twenty four hours of of celebration. God loves us so much that He became human. He humbled Himself. He became human. We want to take twelve days to to celebrate that. And of course, not just 12 days, but hopefully if we do it well for 12 days, it'll seep into the rest of our year that we appreciate all God has done for us in in Jesus's birth in human flesh. There's a philosopher named Dallas Willard who talks about celebration as a spiritual discipline, that it could be something that is uh, important for our spiritual growth, even this idea of celebration. And how much more might that be true for Christmas, he says this. He says, when we engage in celebration, when we enjoy ourselves, our life, our world, in conjunction with our faith and confidence in God's greatness, beauty, and goodness, celebration heartily done 
makes our deprivations and sorrows seem small, and we find in it great strength to do the will of our God because his goodness becomes so real to us. When we celebrate in conjunction with our faith in God's goodness, it helps us to experience, not just know about intellectually, but to experience that God is good and real, and that helps us to have the food we need, so to speak, to do his will in the world. So if we observe Advent properly, if we observe Advent as we ought to for four weeks of sort of solemn anticipation, awareness of, of our, with an awareness of our longings, then we would do well to celebrate the Christmas season in full, to celebrate the significance of what God has done for us with Jesus being born for us. Um, so my wife and I, Elizabeth, work on staff with an organization called Crew, which is a campus ministry. And one of the, uh, an important part of our job is we actually have to work on some fundraising uh, in order for us to be able to, to do what we do. And um, over the years, this is something that can provide a lot of stress, um, but it can also provide unexpected surprises, very welcome surprises. Years ago now, my wife and I went to visit a friend uh, who was a, a guy that I mentored when we were students together in college at OSU. And um, I, I was able to see in, in my friend's life so much spiritual growth. It was awesome to see. But after he graduated and got married, he went through some challenging times. And I, I had uh, some concerns about how he was doing. And so my wife and I went to visit him, mainly just to spend time with him and just try to be an encouragement and support to him. And um, we, ha we had a really good time visiting. And on our way out the door, my friend uh, gave us an envelope. And he said, I, I wanted to, before you go, I just wanted to give you a, a donation towards, towards your campus ministry. And we didn't honestly think a, a, too much of it. Uh, we got to our car and started driving away. And uh, Elizabeth opened up the envelope. And I uh, glanced over to see the look on her face when she saw what was in this envelope. Um, you know, tears were welling up in her eyes. And uh, she opened up the envelope to find that this friend of ours had written a, a check for $5,000 towards our ministry. This, is, this had been the largest donation we had ever seen for our, our ministry before. And um, this was a very unexpected but very welcome uh, surprise. My friend didn't really know that we were experiencing a lot of stress with a shortfall of our support during that time. And we felt so seen by God, so loved by him, that he would provide for us in this very surprising and unexpected way. But I wonder for you, if you have ever experienced a time in your life when, you have ex when you've received a welcome surprise. Of course, sometimes surprises are very unwelcome. But has there been a time in your life when you've experienced a surprise that you were thankful to experience. How did it feel? How did it feel for you when this unwelcome or this, this welcome unexpected surprise came about in your life? Did you feel joy? Did you feel shock? Did you feel relief? Um, 
when we experience a, a welcome surprise, there are various emotions that, that we might feel. But when we look at this, the passage that we're going to look at today in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it will be helpful for us to have an awareness of surprising elements in this text. This is a text that is very familiar to us if we've been a part of the church for a while, especially during the Christmas season. And it could be very easy uh, to, to read the story of the Magi and to sort of miss the surprising elements of this text. So we want to we want to read this text with an awareness of how God might be su- be surprising us in this text. This text, uh, Matthew chapter two one through twelve, is actually a text that sort of symbolizes a transition from the Christmas season to the season of Epiphany, because the season of Epiphany is about. God's incarnation in his son, Jesus, but God has revealed himself not just to the people of Israel, but to the whole world. Now, people from all nations throughout all time have the the opportunity to experience and see what the one true God is really like. And the Epiphany season celebrates that. And um, this text sort of symbolizes the transition from Christmas to to Epiphany. And so we'll look at this text from Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12 this morning. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's a lot of joy. (laughs) And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So as I said a moment ago, there are various surprising elements in this text. And I'm hoping to highlight a a couple of them. The first is that God brings unexpected people to worship Jesus. 
And he does this through unexpected means, through unexpected ways. God brings people we don't expect to Jesus. And he uses ways that we don't expect, methods we don't expect, to bring those unexpected people to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, we saw the story of how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But as chapter 2 opens... There are new characters that enter onto this stage, and the ESV translates uh, them wise men from the east. But the identity of these wise men has been a little mysterious over the centuries. Uh, Christians began to speculate as the centuries went by that maybe these wise men from the east were, were royalty. And maybe there was three of them, actually, because they bring three different gifts. Of course, the text doesn't say how many there are, actually. But because of these three different gifts, the church began to see that maybe there were were three magi. And, of course, this is how we get our famous Christmas carol today, We, We Three Kings. But this word translated in the ESV as wise men can be translated in other places as magi. And if you think about that word magi, it's actually the same root word as the word magician. So the magi were more likely fortune tellers and astrologers than they were royalty. Now they may have been seen by as being wise in pagan Persia, where they came from, Uh, But they would not have been considered wise royalty necessarily by Jews living in in Israel at this time. This is a scandalizing text. And if we see these magi as uh, foreign royalty, in a way it sort of de-scandalizes this text. These magi were magicians. They were astrologers. Uh, They were some of the last people that you might expect to come and to worship Jesus. There's not a a perfect parallel in our day, but um, what I can sort of imagine is how Christians tend to think of uh, a Muslim imam. No matter how virtuous or wise they might seem, they're actually uh, on the wrong team. They're captains on the wrong team. This is not the type of person we would expect to come over a long distance to worship, to worship Jesus. This is an extremely surprising thing that the Magi show up to, to worship Jesus. And God uses unexpected means also. It's easy for us when we think of the star in this passage to think about our nativity scenes. And, um, and to, to sort of gloss over the significance of what, how the Magi use and follow this star to be able to, to find Jesus. But like I said, the Magi were likely astrologers. And um, in pagan Persia, they would have used astrology to try to understand the spiritual realm, to understand the world of the gods, to be able to make decisions and to uh, try to live life the best, they, the best that they knew how. Um, in the Old Testament, in the law and in the prophets, God repeatedly tells Israel to not pay attention to Gentiles who are into astrology, to not follow the practices of the Gentiles who are looking to the stars to try to understand 
the spiritual realm. That's why he gives them his law. That's why he reveals himself through, through the prophets. They don't need to look to the stars to understand the spiritual realm because God reveals, the, uh, the one true God reveals himself to his people in the Old Testament. So uh, it's, again, very surprising that God uses uh, this practice of astrology in a way to, to bring these magi to Israel to find the Messiah to worship him. This is unexpected. This is surprising that God would do this. So God brings unexpected people using unsuspect, unexpected means to worship Jesus. Uh, years ago, there was a non-Christian, non-believing college student, like many college students that are around even today, that thought Christians were stupid and ignorant and thought Christianity really was an unreasonable myth. And uh, this student, when he would go to class and when Christians would speak up in class, he made it his goal to try to beat the professor to the punch of sort of ridiculing these, these Christians and putting them in their place. And it's very likely that the Christians on campus would have seen this student as uh, as really an enemy of God. That's how they experienced him. The student became so hostile towards Christians on his campus that he decided he wanted to, to read the Bible more to be able to be more equipped to make them feel stupid <laughs> and uh, to disprove the faith of, of Christians. And as he studied the life of Jesus and as he studied the resurrection, things began to change. He began to see Jesus in a new light. And he eventually put his faith in Christ and surrendered his life to God. And his name is Josh McDowell. And he became one of the more significant Christian apologists in, in the 20th century. Um, the Magi are not the last people that would be unexpected and surprising that God brings to Jesus. The Magi were not the last people. In fact, we see it as a pattern in the New Testament. You can see this with the Ethiopian eunuch. You can see it with the Apostle Paul himself. Sometimes the people we expect the least to worship Jesus are the ones that God works on by the Holy Spirit and leads them and draws them to worship Jesus. And there are two implications for us, I think, of this reality. First is it's important for us to see ourselves like the Magi, if, if you have grown up with an ethnic background that is not Jewish, you are like these Magi. You, at one point, were an outsider in your ethnic heritage to the faith. Uh, but God, in his grace and his mercy, used the things in your life, the people in your life, used the raw material of your life to draw you to faith in Jesus. And you can have a, a fresh appreciation of how God was at work using the simple things, the things that you knew, the people you knew, the, the practices that you knew in your life to bring you to faith in Jesus. So we can, we can read this passage with a fresh appreciation of what God did to bring us to Jesus but secondly, we can also become a church. We can become a people that, God, that expects God to do the unexpected, 
we could become a church that expects the people that we might um, least expect to come to Jesus. We could we could have an awareness of how the Holy Spirit might be at work in their lives to be to bring them to Jesus. You know, instead of being Christians that drive around and see people's yard signs and see the things that maybe we we disagree with about their worldview, and, and instead of seeing them as an enemy that needs to be defeated, so to speak, what if we were the kind of people that expected God to be at work in their lives? What if we were the kind of church that looked for ways that we could cooperate with what the Holy Spirit might be doing to, to meet people where they're at and to help them on their journey to find Jesus. We've been speaking about God's surprises and unexpected elements in this passage, but we would be remiss not to talk about one more unexpected element. And it's this, that sometimes those that we should expect to honor Jesus as king are prone to reject him. Sometimes the people that we should expect, really, that, that should get it, that should get the gospel, that should be people who worship him, are actually the people who reject him. Herod, in this passage, is described as king. He is the king of Israel. And even if his legitimacy is questionable at best because he is not a descendant of David, he is king of Israel. And so when the Magi come to him and they say that they have seen a star, they've seen and heard that there is a Messiah to be born in Israel, a new king. Um, it says that Herod is troubled. Herod is troubled and, and he gathers scribes, he gathers the religious leaders, he gathers the chief priests because he doesn't know how to how to deal with this this news he doesn't know enough actually about uh the jewish faith to even understand what this might mean so it's scandalizing that the king of israel doesn't know anything about the jewish messiah <laughs> doesn't know anything about where this jewish messiah was to be born and so he consults with the religious leaders now the religious leaders do know they were very quick and able to quote Micah to answer this question of where was the Messiah to be born. But what is really important to see in this passage is whether it's Herod or it's the chief priests or it's the scribes, none of them go with the Magi to Bethlehem to find Jesus. In fact, Herod has a manipulative plan where he wants the, the, the Magi to go and find Jesus and to come back and tell him. He doesn't want to go to worship Jesus. He wants to know where this newborn king will be born because he wants to kill him. And we see that actually in the latter part of chapter 2, which we don't have time to talk about this morning. But the point is that the very people that we should expect to be excited about the news of, of a Jewish Messiah being born are the very people that want to kill him. This should be an answer to prayer, but, but instead it's, a, it's experienced as a threat. We would do well to pay attention to Herod's emotional response when this news of a newborn king arrives to him. 
It says that he's troubled in the ESV. The New English translation says that he is alarmed. So he's, he's troubled, he's worried, he's alarmed. And Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, translates it this way. He says that, that they were terrified. So there's the language of fear involved as, as well. So what are they alarmed by? Why are they terrified? Why are they afraid? Well, it's because God's redemptive work is experienced as a threat when it should have been an answer to prayer. They were afraid perhaps because they might lose their power. They might lose their prestige. They might lose their prosperity. Their, their lives seemed to be basically set up how they wanted them to be. And so the news of a newborn king was not good news. It was bad news. When they caught a hint of God's saving work, instead of rejoicing like they ought to, they were afraid because it was a threat. So this message of the birth of this baby Messiah is good news. God surprises us. He makes his grace available to all peoples, even those, we th- those people we think are very far from God. The incarnation means that people from all nations can be brought to Jesus. And this is very good news. But this text reminds us also that there's a challenge that comes with the incarnation. Uh, sometimes the, the message of Christmas is not just a message of consolation, but a message that is a wake-up call. Because there really are in this passage two different ways to respond to the news of Jesus. There's the way of the Magi. There's, a way, there's this way of dropping everything to go on a journey, to let go of so much, to try to find this newborn king. To be humble, to drop to their knees before a baby, to give up gifts that uh, were extremely valuable, cost them something to come to Jesus. There's this pathway of the Magi, or there's the pathway of Herod and the religious leaders in, in Israel. There's the pathway of when we catch a hint of God's saving work in the world to reject it because it makes us afraid of what we might lose. Of, of the comfort we might have to let go of, of the valuable possessions we might have to let go of, of the way of life that we might have to let go of if Jesus really is the loving Lord of our lives. So there's this way of humility on the one hand and perseverance in coming to worship Jesus. And on the other hand, there's this way of fear that leads to doing nothing, <laughs> That leads to ultimately us being opposed to the plans of God. That is not a place that we want to be. Brennan Manning wrote once about fear and taking risks. And he has this to say. He says, in retrospect, the landmark moments in my life are not the gross sins I committed, nor the infrequent acts of heroic virtue I performed, but they are a handful of decisions that involved risk. Perhaps the major cause of failure in individual and community renewal is the very fear of failure itself. We avoid risk so as not to be shown up as mistaken 
before the world. Wise and prudent people that we are, we manufacture a thousand logical excuses for doing nothing. As we head into 2021, are there ways that you sense the Holy Spirit is at work in your life or in the lives of people around you? Uh, does that bring fear? Well, sometimes it ought to bring fear, honestly. But the question is not whether or not it brings fear. The question is, what will you do with that fear? Will you be like Herod and the religious leaders and do nothing? Like what Brendan Manning talks about, being a wise and prudent person who has a thousand uh, explanations and reasonings for doing nothing? Or will you be the kind of person who takes a risk because Jesus is worth it? The incarnation, of course, means that God loves us. He is so committed to us that he humbled himself, he became human, he suffered and died for us. And this means that God has our backs. We can take a risk, we can walk into faith rather than fear because God has our backs. He is that good. So we can surrender whatever it is that's keeping us from, from walking with him rather than letting our fears cause us to stand and watch on the sideline and end up in opposition, actually, to how God's at work in the world. But the message this morning is there really is not a, a middle ground. There's not a middle ground between the Magi and Herod in this passage. These are just two distinct pathways. It's a fork in the road. God beckons us to be like the Magi because of how good and loving he is. We can always trust God rather than walk in fear. So God says this morning, let me have whatever you're afraid of. I'm at work in and through your life. Let me have whatever it is that brings fear about that being a reality. Hand it over to me and trust me cooperate with me in my redeeming plans for the world. That's what God says to us this morning. And my hope and prayer for us is that we are a church that uh, cooperates with him by his grace and mercy. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.